So welcome. Um, if we haven't met, my name is Mark, one of the assistant pastors here at the church, and um, we are going through a study. If we've got the slide, um, I'll explain and kind of give us a recap here in a second. But if you will, um, open up to hmm, do Genesis 1. Let's do Genesis 1. A couple different places we could have been. Oh, and if you don't have a Bible, Micah's got some in the back for you. If you don't have one, you can keep this one. Just don't sell it on eBay because we troll eBay to check. So be making money off the free Bibles at church. Number one selling book in the history of all of humankind, and you can generally get it for free anyways. So true story, true story. All right. How are we, though? Seriously? We good? Yeah? Happy? Who's tired? Right? Who worked a full day, right? I've been there. I'm here, right? I don't, for those of you who don't know, I don't work at the church. I keep wanting to preface that because sometimes I, like, talk about work and my boss and people are like, is he talking about Rob? So I'm not on staff here as an assistant pastor. So um, excited to be here. Um, let me pray, and then uh, we'll jump into it. Jesus, just as, uh, just as Micah uh, prayed, just uh, come before you. Um, I pray an- anticipating, anticipating um, your perspective for our lives and, and, and an ability given by you, gifted by you, to apply it to our lives. And so no, no pastor can change the heart of any man. Uh, we know that, that Holy Spirit, that you alone um, convict. I'm called to, to preach the truth and rightly divide the word. Um, but we know that, that you indwell in the hearts of your children and, your, and, and cause us to be believers and you cause us to come alive to your word. And so I pray that that would be our heart as we approach um, tonight, mine included, that, uh, that you would enable me to teach, that you would enable us all to learn. Would you score our hearts? Would you open up our hearts um, so that anything that, that comes from you would, would sink deeply into who we are and become part of our new DNA as you continue to um, perfect us through sanctification. And so I pray your blessing over this study. Um, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you're just joining us for the first time, we're endeavoring in a six-week study called On Earth As It Is in Heaven. As it says there, you can see Matthew 6.10. That comes from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he scampered up a mountain. Um, it must have been exhausting following Jesus around because all his Bible studies are like the top of mountains. Okay, can you imagine that? Like, hey, we're going to study the Bible. Let's go to the top of Mount Boney. Some of you are like, nah, forget that. Okay, going to the place by the lawnmower shop. That's easier. But Jesus heads up on a mountain and he's teaching and he um, is going through the Sermon on the Mount, arguably the most epic sermon in the history of all of humankind. And in that, he gives them not a prayer to chant over and over and over mindlessly and numbingly. He, in fact, literally says, don't just chant things over and over. And ironically, we took the Lord's Prayer, and in a lot of places, we just kind of chant it over and over numbingly. But what he does is he sets the tone by saying, this is a perfect prayer. He says, this is a model prayer. He says, in this way, pray. And he does assume that we pray, which is tough for some of us to hear. Um, He does assume that we, as a 
family, as a congregation, as a church, as disciples, he assumes that we pray. And then he says, in this manner, pray. And, and I'm sure most of us, if we've been in the church long, have at some point heard a sermon on that prayer. And, and you can spend you can spend a month on each line. It's, it's so beautifully constructed. It's, it's the perfect model prayer. And in it, Jesus says this. He says, in this manner, therefore pray. Our father, and he starts with familial language, which was new at the time. It was somewhat foreign at the time. It, it, it gave this, this understanding of a special access to God that even some of us struggle with today. You know, someone came up to me after the very first sermon and said, look, it's not just the Jews that struggle with intimacy with God. It's Christians, 100% right. We ourselves do. Maybe you're put off by the term father. Like I didn't have a good one, so that, that has a bad taste in my mouth. But I implore you to understand that you have a perfect one in heaven. Maybe you had a great dad like I did. I confessed, I'm not ashamed to have a boring testimony. I'm not. I praise God for my boring testimony like Timothy. You know, he's like, oh, your whole family's a bunch of believers. You know, Timothy's like, "Eh." Paul's like, have a spine, like be strong, homie. And then you got radical testimonies like Paul. So whether you've got a radical family testimony or you had an awful dad like my mom, whether you've got a great dad like me, none of us have a perfect dad on earth, but we do in heaven. And Jesus is saying, there's a special relationship. I'm gonna gonna describe God in a special way because that, should conjure up, he would hope, a a special access and understand that we have a special access. Like no one has access to me like my family. No one. My wife and children are the only ones that have unfettered access to me at all times, no matter where I am. My wife works next door. She walks in right now and says, one of the kids just fell down. I'm I'm like, peace, see ya. Like, I'll just have Elijah come up and talk about something. I don't know. Like that's a special access that they have to me. They know that I'm there listening. And he says, our father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. I I did a personal study that, that took a look at the whole arc, one of the arcs of the whole Bible. And you see God passionately pursuing his glory throughout the Bible. You ever had that question? Like, why did God love me? The answer is because it would serve his glory the greatest, not because you're the greatest, because it would serve his glory. Why did God save me? The Bible says, because he was passionately after his own glory. It even answers some of life's deepest questions. Like, why did God allow sin to enter the world? Do you remember that? He started wrestling with that in like in fifth grade. Remember that? Well, if God's good, why do you allow sin? The answer comes from this study that some, in some way, shape or form, the Bible shows us over and over again, that somehow this story, this gospel, this redemption framework that would send his son to die on a cross, somehow that serves his glory the most. His glory is served, his name is served greater by having to send his son to die than if Adam had never sinned. Pastor Guzik said that we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. And he says, hallowed be thy name, that it's, that it's about his name and his fame, not ours And he says, your kingdom come, not our little kingdom. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done, not our will. That's tough. I struggle with it every morning. My will, my way, my plans, my goals. He says, your kingdom come, your will be done. And he says this, on earth as it is in heaven. And what he's showing us is in a perfect prayer, Jesus is showing us on that line. 
He said part of a perfect heart before God. And we know that that prayer aligns us with the will of God, right? It aligns us to what his will is. It's not that we come to him like a cosmic genie in the sky and we barter and we say, I'll do this if you do that. His will is being done. His gospel is playing out. It is active and alive and he wants us a part of it. And he says, a part of that perfect prayer is saying, show me your precepts, show me your perspectives from heaven that I might reflect them on earth. And so it's our, as I've said every week, it's our passionate, prayerful plea that God's precepts and perspectives, his heavenly precepts and perspectives would be made manifest on earth through his children. And in in week one, we took a look at the doctrine of the Imago Dei, the image of God. And we took a look at Genesis 1. Some of you are like, we're still in Genesis 1. There's so much in the creation account in the first two chapters alone before chapter three, where we screw it all up because it doesn't take us long, right? There's so much in those first two chapters that set the foundation for all truth, for all theology, for all understanding. And we took a look at the fact that everything was created according to its own likeness, all the animals according to their likeness, all the plants and the herbs and the grass according to their likeness. All of creation was created according to its own likeness. And something changed when he created humans, when he created mankind, when he created male and female. He says, let's create them in our image and likeness. And now there's a a special calling and responsibility that God says that you are now stamped with your, you are the earthly imprint of a heavenly reality now. You are an earthly imprint of heavenly reality. We're broken and fractured. Adam wasn't at first, but then we were. So we're like a mirror that's been cracked. You shine light on it, it it goes off into different directions, not, not perfectly as it once did, but it's fractured and it's broken and God is putting that back together and his light is being focused and being transferred from heaven to earth and we're broken, we're fractured. None of this has been, we're perfect. We're in the image of God. We are gods. No, that's how cults start. But this is the understanding that though broken and fractured as God puts us back together and restores us, he's reflecting his character and his nature and his traits and his perspectives and his precepts from heaven through us to those that would be lost as we were once lost. And so in week one, we took a look at this, it, this understanding of the Imago Dei, that mankind was made in the image and the likeness of God, that we are intrinsically, as humans, we have more value, dignity, and worth than lower creation. The gospel of Jesus Christ is that you are better than fish. Don't you love that? You are more valuable than birds. You are more valuable than cattle. You are more valuable than herb. You are more valuable than grass in the mountains. You are stamped with the image and likeness of God. There was an absolutely horrifying story this week out of Iceland. And the ones moaning are the ones that have read. Iceland is declaring that they have all but eradicated Down syndrome. It is untrue. They have simply slaughtered those with Down syndrome through abortion. It's an Imago Dei issue. It's in the image and the likeness of God issue. Porn addiction on the rise, always been on the rise for men, rising for women, is at its core an Imago Dei issue because you see them as objects 
not created in the image and the likeness of God. So many issues stem from a fractured understanding of the Imago Dei. What we saw in Charlottesville is an Imago Dei problem. And it is evil. And as a pastor in Texas said, it's from the pit of hell. White supremacy from the pit of hell. God has no delineation. By the way, if you don't like diversity on earth, you're going to hate heaven. You're going to hate it. It says all the nations will be there. You're going to be crazy bummed out if you think we all look the same in heaven. It's an Imago Dei issue from which all that springs. Humankind is intrinsically has more value, dignity, and worth than lower creation. We're not God, but we're not animal. And all false theologies tell you you're one of the same. You're one of those. You're either a God or you're just an animal responding to instinct. One way in which God displays his heavenly precepts and perspectives is through us as individuals stamped in the image of God. And I hope you see that I'm building a case here. And and all I'm doing is following the chronology of Genesis 1. I'm not making this order up. And as I said, the first week, it doesn't start with us. Don't, don't get me wrong. The Bible doesn't start with you. Thank goodness. It says, in the beginning, you. Thank goodness. It said, in the beginning, God. The first cause. And that was when the time-space continuum was instituted. He's before all things. He will be after all things. But at some point, he started and he created all things. And then he created us stamped with the image of God. And so I, I, I wrote down that, that, that as Christians, as American Christians, we more often, I believe, want God to change culture according to our perspective rather than have God change us according to his perspective. We often come to the table wanting God to fix culture. And God says, that will never happen unless I can first change you as my earthly imprint. Beaming heavenly perspectives and and precepts on earth. And so again, week one, we took a look at the Imago Dei In week two, we followed God's story and we went out one more degree. We took a look at marriage last week. We took a look at that man and woman was created in his image. By the way, it's the only, we are the only faith that in our ancient manuscripts from chapter one declares male and female equal in the eyes of God. Let no one tell you that the Bible is sexist. Let no one tell you that the Bible sets up that man is more valuable, than, more valuable than woman or that man and woman are more valuable than children. It's the only religious text, the only ancient religious manuscript that sets up from the very first chapter co-heirs in God's view of his promises, of the value and the worth and the dignity that he puts in us in the Imago Dei. And so we are created in his image, male and female. And then we see a miracle. I was just in Chicago this weekend watching a miracle, which was two people who attend this church. We flew to Chicago to get married. Expensive way to do it, but we did it, right? Two bodies, two Male, female, becoming one, the Bible says. And the pastor, I did not officiate, the pastor did an immaculate job talking about covenant and this miracle that we're about to witness. That, that male and female who reflect God individually come together in marriage and now reflect God as one flesh moving forward through life as a picture of the gospel. We see that the, the husband is the head of the wife as Jesus is head of the church, right? And the feminists try to use that. You believe wives are you know, submissive to men? No. 
just submissive to their husband. And the husband has to treat her like Jesus loved the church. So let's talk about how Jesus treated the church. And he loved her and he served her and he washed her feet and he ultimately died for her. Graciously and lovingly, he sacrificially cared for her. Sets the tone for the responsibility of the husband. The wife is called to be the helper. As the Holy Spirit describes himself as a helper, it's a divine term, not a derogatory term. Says he's the head, the responsibility is on him that you would help him make decisions, but know that the responsibility ultimately falls on him for the decisions made. You're like, give me an example. The garden in chapter three, where Eve eats first, then gives it to Adam. And God comes down and says, where's Adam? You notice that? Why didn't he go to Eve? Hey, you know, we're gonna do this sequentially. Why didn't he do that? Because he had called Adam to shepherd and guide and steward her and protect her. And Adam stood there, which is a picture of the modern American Christian, by the way, standing there doing nothing. Guys, headship, just, I don't know what's gonna happen, right? Epidemic across the country, guys dropping wives and children off at church, going back to watch football, sitting by the wayside. And then he blames, he, he literally, if you've read chapter three, he literally blames sin on Eve. God comes down and says, what happened? He's like, hey, everything was cool until she showed up. He does, he says it. And he should, but God came to him, why? Because he was head of the marriage. He was supposed to guide and protect her. Moral of the story, gentlemen, if your wife is talking to a snake, kill the snake. It's not hard, it's not hard. Wife talks to a snake, kill the snake. But she fell and God held him responsible. And so the wife comes in as the helper and reflects the character and the nature of the Holy Spirit while he's supposed to be reflecting the, the character and the, tra- the, the traits of Jesus loving on his church and then the church in faithful submission to his loving protection. And you start to see how marriage is not about you. It's about the gospel. And when the world sees that marriage in loving sacrifice, not that 50-50 nonsense you hear from people. Oh, it's a 50-50 deal. No way. You'll never agree on halfway. It's Jesus didn't say, yo, meet me halfway on that cross. What do you say? He said, all of it, while you're still yet a sinner, I'll die for you. While we were turned the other way, focused on our sin, he said, I'll go to death. He laid himself down 100%, and then he asks us to do the same. He says, lay down your life for me. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Lay down your life. I gave 100%. He's a good coach. He'll never ask you to do anything he won't model for you in the first place. Anyone have that coach in high school that would do everything with you? I did. I had a soccer coach. He's like, all right, we're going to go run up this hill with a player on your back. Glesney, get on mine. And he would do it. He said, all right, guys, 10 mile run today. Let's roll. And he went, love those coaches. Won't ask me to do a thing that he's not willing to do himself. Jesus is a good, great coach. So if we're going to be little Christians, it might serve us well that we start to look a little bit more like him. And so he says, in marriage, you'll do that. Husband will lay down his life. His wife will sacrifice. It'll be a reflection of this heavenly perspective glaring down to a broken and fallen world so that when they see that, they have to wrestle with the truths of the gospel, even if they're not Christians. And we go around being like, well, a cross happened thousands of years ago. I'm just waiting for revelation. I don't know what the game plan is. This is the game plan on earth as it is in heaven until heaven comes to earth, right? And so marriage, not only as us as individuals, as the Imago Dei, reflecting the the perspectives and the precepts of God on earth as it is in heaven. In marriage, it's another way that God displays those things. The husband is the head of the wife who is the helper just as Jesus is the head of the church and he loves and serves her faithfully. Co-heirs, equal in the eyes of God, but with separate roles. I wish God would model that. Notice the father didn't die on the cross for your sins. Does it make Jesus less God? 
Father, Son, Holy Spirit, equal God, separate roles, yeah? Separate roles, yet equally God. And that's bleeding, it's pushing right into the family. The father and the mother, co-heirs, equal in the eyes of God with different roles, head and helper. And then now we're gonna add children in this third component. And so again, this starts with God. This starts with the Trinity. It doesn't start with my family. It doesn't start with Pastor Brett's family, Pastor Rob's family. It doesn't start with your family. Take a deep breath, thank goodness, yeah? So you think about your family right now. You're like, that would be a disaster. If you, I, look, I got a, I got a, I've got a great family. I don't want the gospel based on our example. We have our weird closet stuff, right? We've had our, we've had our major failures as a family. Thank goodness that family began with God and the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in functional submission with separate roles, but all equal co-heirs in his glory. And so we come to week three, family. Family. And you need to know that this is a prominent theme in the Bible in a couple different ways. And I think most of you are assuming we're going to go to some verses and I'm going to actually read some of those verses. You're going to be like, I've heard these verses and I want to hear your perspective on these verses. And I'm not, I'm going to do a very different family message. I believe, I believe, but we're going to take a look at the biblical prescription, the the prominent theme, which is familial language. And it starts with the Trinity, the father and the son. God could have used anything. He could have used colors. He could have said the square, the shape and the rectangle, the square, the triangle and the rectangle. If he wanted to, what did he choose to use? The father and the son, familial language. And so it begins there. In the beginning was God, Elohim, singular plurality, unified diversity. Three persons, one God. And so familial language begins with the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and functional loving submission. The Father sent the Son, the Son sends the Spirit, the Spirit glorifies Jesus who came to do the will of the Father. God chose to use familial language to describe many truths about himself. I'm not gonna go through an exhaustive list, but I'll give you some and I'm gonna wash you with the word I pray. It says that familial language is used for God, the Father's relationship to us. Second Corinthians 6.18 says, I will be a father to you. Jesus just prayed, Father, hallowed be thy name. He says, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord God Almighty. Familial language, so that was God's, the Father's relationship to us. Familial language is used for Jesus's relationship to us. It says in Matthew 12, 49 through 50, it says, he stretched out his hand and his hand toward the disciples and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Because they had said, he had said before, rhetorical question, said, who are my mother and brothers? He says, who is my family? And he says, for whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so he uses familial language to describe the relationship between Jesus and us. Again, in John 1, 12 through 13, it says, but as many received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And he knows family is one of the ways that we're going to begin to understand sort of these things, the, the change in nature and the characteristics that begin to blend as you procreate and you fill the earth and you have this familial understanding. Familial language is used to describe salvation. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption. He could have said accumulation. He could have said, you know, kidnapping, right? What did he say? Adoption. And by the way, adoption is a beautiful picture of the gospel on earth. He says, uh, see, told you, not adopted, but agrees. Some of you should agree more like the baby. Okay, so it says, predestine us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. Again, the pleasure of his will is what he's passionately pursuing. So we predestine you, why? Because it serves his glory. So I know, going back to an earlier point, and that says familial language, and I keep saying it, it's my notes. Okay, like, like what is he reading from? It says, familial language is used to describe the promises of God. Romans 8, 14 through 17 says, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness of our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we would be glorified together. So he's showing you the promises of God and he uses familial language to describe it. On and on and on throughout the Bible. I pray as you go through your study this week, because everyone's currently doing a study in their Bible, right? Yeah, just nod your head, pretend, lie in church, okay, right? So as you read through the Bible, you're gonna see familial language used constantly. I, I, would, I would love for you to, every time you come across father, son, adoption, this sort of stuff, you'd be like, what truth is he using familial language to describe? And see how often it comes up on and on. We see that family was used to usher in the Messiah. God wrote a very different story than I would have. Jesus would have showed up like Revelation 19 and Genesis 3, but you screwed it up. He comes in on a horse and just torches the whole thing. That's what I would have done, right? He was God. He didn't have to be born. He could have come a king. They wanted him to come a king and he decided to what? Enter in through a, don't say that word, baby, through a family. Yeah? Could have just popped up like 13, like, yo, let's get this started, okay? Just start teaching, start ripping, come in at 30 if he wanted to. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. What did he do? He came in through a family. He had brothers and sisters. Some of you haven't thought about him as a human like that. He went to the bathroom. It doesn't say that in the Bible. Fully human. Had brothers. I imagine probably a pretty rad bunk bed. He was a carpenter, right? Probably figured that out. Probably stacked them tall and wide out there, right? Had brothers, had, you know, breakfast in the morning before work. People are like, he doesn't say that in the Bible because he spent 18 years just working. Not much to write about. And he, and he came in through a family and he had an adopted dad, right? Adoptive dad who had adopted him. He had a, a birth mother. And so God chose to use a family to usher in the Messiah, says, the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the highest and Lord God will give him a throne of his, will give him the throne of his father, David. So much familial language. Galatians 4, 4 through 5 says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's some familiar verses that you may know. We can start with the 10 commandments, right? What's the fifth commandment? Honor thy father and mother. So you need to hear that tonight. We're not gonna go into depth. Some of you aren't doing that. 
I'll rely on the Holy Spirit to convict you of some of these areas because we're going to go through some scripture real quick and then I want to do perhaps a different take on family. But some of you need to honor your father and mother. Now, we, we know that that doesn't mean if they ask you to do something illegal, immoral, wrong, and well, have to honor them. No, it's not the call. The call is when they're in submission to Christ, you are then called in submission to Christ to submit to them, just as wives to their husbands, husbands to the church, church to the governing authorities, governing authorities. Ultimately, we pray perhaps at some point, but we know it will be restored, that everyone will be subject to God's authority, but all these layers of protection are working their way down. So if your parents are imperfectly not asking you, though, to do anything illegal and moral, some of you youth need to honor your father and mother. Deuteronomy 5.16 says, Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God has commanded you, that your days may be long. That means more time for Instagram, just translating. And that it may be well with you in the land which your Lord your God has given you. Deuteronomy 6, 6 through 7 says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them, you shall teach diligently to your children, and shall talk to them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Some of you parents need to know you haven't been pouring into your children the way you should. This isn't a constant conversation that you're having spiritual truths, your walk, where you've been broken, where God has restored you. You haven't been teaching them diligently. And you expect, just honor me. I, I, I told them to. Now I'm asking you to honor God's command to pour into them diligently and teach and walk beside them in love and grace as parents. Psalm 127, three through five, behold, children are a what? Heritage, a blessing from the Lord, not a command. We're going to go over that again. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. Don't get legalistic. You see people going over, they studied, what is a quiver? It's five. Okay, so every Christian family should have five. Stop it. My wife's been pregnant five times. We have three kids that survived. Okay, don't, don't tell me, don't get legalistic that because a quiver was five, we need to have five because that's what God said. He says, be full. And by the way, it's a blessing, not a command. He said, bless them with children. He didn't command, he didn't demand, okay? Happy is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak of their enemies in the gate. Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in way that he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, here's where I break from a lot of folks. I, I, I want you to know that there is a difference between a proverb and a promise. A promise from God will happen absolutely every single time, 100% without fail, Yes? Proverb is a general truth, a general truth. Some people get ruffled by that, but let me prove it because by this verse alone, it says, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. First, you would have to show that there is no person that was ever trained that ever died outside the faith, which I don't believe to true. I'm a pastor's kid. I've seen many, but at the same time, by this verse alone, that would put salvation in the hands of the parents. And if they do their job right, the kid will be saved. It's not true. Proverb is a general truth. It's not a promise, but there isn't. Don't. But I'm not belittling the proverbs. But I'm saying that that may not be a hundred percent true all the time. It's a general proverb, right? Proverb says that a man doesn't work, he doesn't eat. I know plenty of people that don't work and still eat. Yeah, God would be wrong then. Okay, he's not wrong. It's giving a general truth, not a promise. Ephesians six. Four, is that okay? We good on that? 
If you're not, you're not going to bring it up right now. I'm just going to type an email to Rob, right? Okay, it's fine. So Ephesians 6.4 says, And you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath. I struggle with this because sometimes I like to get my kids a little worked up. Okay, but God's working on me on that one. But bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, obey your parents in all things. Again, illegal things? No. It's not what the Bible's saying. It's not the ark of all scripture. It's not the gospel. But it says, Obey them in all things, for this is well and pleasing to the Lord. Young kids today be like, I wish I knew what pleased the Lord. I'll tell you, obeying your parents pleases the Lord. Give me something else. Give me something. Obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. I don't like what they're doing. Please the Lord. Okay. Not illegal, not wrong. I know. But I had you open up to Genesis 1 because we're following the chronology on earth as it is in heaven. And we've been camping in Genesis 1 for a while. And we're still going to barely get out of Genesis by like the end of this thing, the series. Okay. Take a look at me. Take a look with me. We'll go Genesis 1.26. I just want to reiterate, then God said, let us make mankind, if you will, in our image, according to our likeness, Trinitarian language. People are like, well, there's no such thing as three persons. And why would he say our? It's not plural gods, but it's three persons, one God. It says, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea. See, you're better than fish. And over the birds of the air, you're better than birds. And over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, the Imago Dei. In his image, in the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. We talked about that. We touched on that. Christians need to be clear and compassionate and concise when we help people understand that sex is a biological truth, not a psychological spectrum. That's why they came up with the term gender, because they can't fight it on biology. And there is a, there is a loving discussion that needs to take place. We need to approach it with that, but it would behoove Christians to say, when we talk at a biological level, God has not been made out to be a liar. There is male and female. It is either a Y chromosome or not. So yeah, but it's a gender thing. I know, psychological issue. You address psychological issues with psychology. You don't pretend that the biology doesn't state a simple truth. So he says, male and female, he created them. Then God, listen to this, then God blessed them. Blessed them. He didn't demand of them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. I put emphasis on that not because I don't encourage couples to have kids. I pray that all the couples that have come to my house and see how much we love our kids and have fun with our kids. But I do that to relieve some of the pressure that the legalist side would say that God demands that you have kids. That stings to singles. That stings to those who can't. And it's just simply not true. Children are, as we read earlier, a blessing, not a command. They are a blessing from the Lord, not a command. Families are to be a blessing reflecting the gospel. And here's where I'm going to take an interesting turn because I don't think that in the, 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 the general 805 evangelical, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, gospel-centered Christian church like ours, I don't believe many of us are surprised by a pastor saying family is important. And I'm going to give you 40 verses to prove it. Is there anyone here shocked by that? I didn't think that you guys care. I thought it was the opposite. You hated family. You want to see the destruction of it. I, I don't think many of us struggle with the importance of family. I would submit to you that we're a victim of our own success and that most things we actually struggle with the idolization 
of things. Sports aren't bad, but we've made them God. Marriage isn't bad, it's good, but we've made it God. Kids aren't bad, they're good, but we've made them God. We've taken good things and made them God things. So I want to perhaps stretch us from a different angle and challenge Thousand Oaks tonight, whether you're a, a father, a wife, a child, engaged, married, divorced, widowed, that we have this heavenly perspective, but we know that we're demanded of in the Bible time and time again, not to idolize things. They may be good things, but we can't make them God things. And so I don't think many of us struggle with that. We don't worship, or I think they struggle with worshiping their family. And so I have, we don't worship family. We worship the God who created family. Same with marriage. Don't worship marriage. I see it a lot, especially with you ladies. Guys do it in a different kind of weird way. But ladies, you worship marriage. You get into marriage. You're like, this didn't really satisfy me the way I thought it would. Guys do the same thing on different levels. And my wife and I work with a lot of young couples. A lot of times you put up like, that's your goal. If I could just get married, it's all going to work. Like, no joke. Zach Schellebarger, you know Zach Schellebarger? used to co-teach with me on Sunday nights. We were at a wedding together. We were talking with some of the bridesmaids. Not in a weird way. It was out in the open. Okay, right? So we were all out taking photos and one of them was talking about, oh, it's so awesome. You guys are married. Like you just have that person that totally completes you. Zach straight up was like, that's not the case. What do you mean? He's like, don't get me wrong. I love marriage. He's like, my wife doesn't complete me. That was awesome. I'm sitting there like, <laughs> Instagramming it. Like, go, go, Zach, go. You know, not in a jerkish way, but it was just, he's like, you could see it. They're like, man, if I could just get the laser, if I could just get married, you always have someone. And it happens. And then people are like, oh, I don't know if I want this person here all the time, right? This guy follows me around now all the time. Like, wake up and he's slobbering next to me, snoring. Like, we talked about last week, marriage is first and foremost a decision. Love is first and foremost a decision, not a feeling. It's not romantic, but it was reflected on the cross. That was the greatest act of love. Didn't feel good. It was a decision, right? Don't get me wrong. There's, woo, right? But Jesus decided to stay there as the greatest act of love. He didn't say, this feels great. Long story short, we don't worship family. We worship the God who created family. And we worship with our family, as a family. Same with money. You don't worship money. We worship with our money. You don't worship service. You worship with your service. You don't worship work. You worship with your work, right? Same thing with family. So guess what I got? Seven signs that you may be worshiping your family instead of worshiping the God who created family. And I want to perhaps redeem some of our perspectives. And for those of you that are like, well, but you know, I'm just single, I'm young. This is the time to learn it. People are like, I don't, need to, I don't need to hear about marriage. I'm not married. No, that's exactly when you need to learn about marriage is before you get married. That's why my wife and I voluntarily plead and we do the premarital counseling at this church. If we can usher in some of these understandings before you hit that altar, right? Same thing with marriage. You're like, oh, I don't have not a dad, not a mom. I don't need to. This is when you need to know this. So here are seven signs that you may be worshiping your family instead of worshiping God with your family. Number one, we seldom host other people. I've got notes. I'm going to do a lot of reading. It says, if our home is primarily seen as a fortress set up against the outside world, there's an issue. There's a problem. 
a Jesus-centered home is marked by growing hospitality. Introverts beware. Growing, I said. It doesn't mean that you just start going five days a week, everyone at our house all the time. It's growing. Every day, by the grace of God, a little bit more. It's even a requirement to be an elder is that you're hospitable. Do you know that? Even to be in church leadership, the Bible says, I think it's in 2 Timothy, it says, he's got to be hospitable. He's got to be okay with other people coming into his home, coming into his fishbowl, saying, this is who we are. He's got to be vulnerable with family. A Christian family worships the God who created family by gladly inviting others into their home for rest, encouragement, and strengthening, which reflects a God who invited us into his family and into his home. So number one, we seldom host others, but we are called to reflect a God who invites Number two, sign that you may be worshiping your family instead of worshiping the God who created family is that we seldom reach out to others. This is, look, I've done a little bit of traveling even just in Chicago. I've been in Nashville a couple times this year. You hear it, some of you that haven't been outside much or have maybe lived here your whole life. One of the, the biggest things that people say is when they go to other states is what? People are so friendly. You notice that? I'm not saying we're jerks, but it's just a little different out here. I'm from the Midwest originally. I lived here two years, actually, in between Chicago and Minneapolis when I lived in those two cities. Lived out here for two years. Didn't even know our neighbors. Now, part of that might have been our fault. But then I moved to Minnesota, and no joke, a group of kids showed up because they saw a moving truck. And they're like, hey, you got kids? We're playing football. Right? And they brought food over. They're like, well, you're not going to have groceries for a while. And they brought food. It's just a little different. I'm not saying Californians are all bad. I'm just saying it's a little different. We tend to be a little more closed off. We tend to come into church, hurry, we're done, and we don't with the music. All right, let's slide out. Like, and we're very this. You know, I was just talking with a friend last night, you know, just, he's like, I don't get the whole, like, it's slower other places. I'm like, people just take a little bit more time to be face-to-face in other states. It's something that we struggle with out here, to be honest. You've been to New York, it's even colder there. Like, not just weather-wise. It's cold, it's just straight, like, what? I, I don't need anything from you, I need to go, you know. But we seldom reach out to others. If our family is so insular that others don't know us, there's a problem, A Christian family is filled with love and worship and it should overflow to those around us. Neighbors and coworkers can't help but be touched by the love that permeates from a Christian family. And so a Christian family is called to worship the God who created family by graciously and lovingly pouring into others, reflecting a God who graciously and lovingly pours into us. So number two sign was we seldom reach out to others. Number three, we seldom serve in the church. If our family is so focused on just being a family and attending church that we can't attend midweek Bible studies, congrats. Okay, you're here, midweek, okay. You missed an opportunity to clap for yourself. It's crazy for Americans, right? Normally I'll take it. No, don't, I was just, you know. <laughs> Or you can't, you're so intent on being together Sunday mornings that the parents can't teach Sunday school or assist in the nursery, there's a problem. You start to see how you insulate. It's like, well, I'm at church, Mark. That's what you said. You preached a whole sermon on being at you know, church. And so I'm here, but what were we doing? We're just moving around in our pod. We're a family. We get out. We got brunch after this. We don't serve. No, no, I'm just keeping my family together. I don't serve children's ministry. Crazy. Right. A Christian family sees itself as part of the community not separate from it. Not more important than it, but essential to it. And a Christian family worships the God who created family by serving the body of Christ, reflecting a God who came to earth to serve the body. If Jesus did it, why can't you? 
I go, who's a good example of someone serving the church? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> it's not me. Don't serve because I'm serving. Don't serve because my wife is serving. Don't serve because your friend is serving. Serve because Jesus served you. And so we seldom serve in the church is a sign that we may be worshiping our family instead of worshiping the God who created family. Number four, we seldom have time. We seldom have time. If our family is always busy with its own activities, I'm going to confess on some of this stuff. Baseball, soccer. I just finished all-star baseballs with my boy. I'm headed into soccer coaching. I coach baseball in the spring. I coach soccer in the fall. And so we're literally just coming off Ethan's all-star season just a couple weekends ago. And already I'm like, I'm two weeks behind on getting my soccer team started. And I don't care. Like AYSO is like, hey, we've been practicing for two weeks. I'm like, cool, I'm resting. <laughs> like, don't worry about it. We'll figure it out. There's seven. They're all terrible at soccer, anyways. Okay. <laughs> right? Some of you offended because you haven't been to a seven year old soccer game. Okay. Don't worry. Pele, relax. They're going to get slightly better this year on schedule. Okay. So if we're so busy with our own activities, baseball and soccer and piano and ballet and family vacations, that we have little time for others, there's a problem. The enrichment and growth of our children is not at the expense of pouring into others. A Christian family teaches their children that they and their activities are not the center of life, but that Jesus is. We're struggling with this. All-star season stretched us because we had to, and where's Dan, right? Late, hey, family, right? All-stars, right? Our kids are pretty good at baseball, Okay. But we, like, I remember the first tournament. I come strolling up. You're like, Pastor, it's Sunday morning. Like, I'm like, yep. <laughs> but I teach on Sunday night, so I'm square, okay? Right? So we would both, my wife and I would both go on Saturday, and then my wife works at the church, and so I would take on Sunday. It's still serving, though, right? But then they asked us to play fall ball, and, like, all those games are on Sundays. And we said, eh, no. We're going to do soccer. We're not doing that. You got to draw a line. You don't have to be legalistic. Some people are like, there's no way all Sunday, keep the Sabbath holy, right? They go crazy. Sabbath is Saturday for our family because both my wife and I work on Sundays, right? So that's our family day. But it's not legalistic, but if you seldom have time, you got to get introspective. A Christian family worships the God who created family by taking the time to invest and minister to others, reflecting a God who takes the time to invest in and minister to us. Five, the fifth sign that you may be worshiping family instead of the God who created family is that we seldom sacrifice. It's going to be a tough one. If our family is reluctant to give generously because of what it costs our family, there's a problem. We hesitate to give and above our tithe to uh, give above and beyond our tithe to missionaries, to local church, to local charities because saving up for a, co- a child's college fund comes first. Well, we're doing this for our child, and so we don't have anything extra. We're pouring it all into that fund. A Christian family gives generously, generous to the point of giving sacrificially. A Christian family worships the God who created family by giving sacrificially so that others may live life more abundant, reflecting a God who gave sacrificially so that we might have life and life more abundant. The sixth sign that you may be worshiping family instead of the God who created family is that we seldom have flexibility. If others feel like they're always interrupting our family by calling, visiting, proposing a time to get together, there's a problem. Oftentimes, by the way, it's other people that notice this before you do. Oh, we just didn't think that we could, hey, why didn't you guys 
call. Why didn't you tell us? Oh, we just, you guys are so busy. Like we just, you know, we knew that you got on a schedule. You got your baseball thing. You can't be, you bugged with that. You get up early and stay up late. I get, you know, other times other people give us that indicator before we realize it. They begin to feel like our family's routine cannot be interrupted by under any circumstances. We convey this consciously or even subconsciously and others pick it up pretty quick. A Christian family should be noted by its flexibility and joy when others stop by. And we don't do that really out here. Again, I'm from the Midwest. I've been out here half of my life now, 18 years, but I can remember just marked difference. Maybe it's a sign of the times. Maybe it's because it was like 80s, early 90s, but just people would show up. You remember that? There's a comedian that does a whole skit. Like back in the day, like doorbell rang. Like you got so excited. Like someone's here. Now like the doorbell rings and you're like, you're like lock, like shut the door, like lights off. Like who would, who would be showing up at four? Right? You lock your lights off. Like you hide behind the couch. Who is it? If someone just shows up, you're like offended. Like, why didn't they text? Right? That's what text is for. So I don't have to actually deal with you. I can deal with you on my own time, right? There was a time when people got pumped when someone showed up. You just like show up at other people's family. Like, we're here with pie, right? Now you're like freaked out by that. Especially out here, I'm saying. Like, former Midwestern, it's just different out here. People don't do that. It's just weird just to walk down the street in a neighborhood. People are like, what's he doing? Is he going to steal our trash can or something? He's like, no, I'm just walking around waving at people. It's weird. Shut the blinds, right? We're so flexible. I don't know how I got that. It's not in the notes, but. The Christian family is noted by its flexibility and joy when others stop by, their friendliness when called, and the availability when needed. A Christian family worships the God who created family by going out of their way to serve others, reflecting the God who went out of his way to serve us. God didn't have to, by the way. Nothing in this book was because God had to. Not a single thing did he have to, but he did. It's tough to hear, I know, little one. Right? So the sixth way is that we seldom have flexibility. And the seventh way, we seldom speak well of others. If our family has an arrogance about it, there's a problem. And it sounds like this. We have it together. We got to figure it out. Others don't quite understand the importance of family and our worship time and our Sunday routine and our calling as parents, right? Start to get like all biblical on it, right? I understand my role as the head of this family and you're infringing, right? And we start to get critical. Our words are usually marked by criticism rather than grace, usually by snark rather than love. A Christian family should be filled with thankfulness to not only to God, but to others. Our children should hear us commending and promoting others, thinking more highly of others. By the way, it doesn't mean you think low of yourself. It just means that wherever you think you are, you think more highly of others, right? Don't think, oh, I have to be depressed and hate myself. No, it's just wherever you are, think higher of others. It's a command. It says people should find that we are refreshing to their souls. And by the way, it says those who refresh will be refreshed. So you're like, I want to be refreshed. Then refresh others. Watch how you get refreshed. No, but they have to refresh me. No, it'll come back. Trust me. Okay? Trust me. You refresh others, you will be refreshed. Refreshing their souls rather than critical of their practices. 5% battery left, so we got to wrap this up. Okay, it says, a Christian family worships it. Again, it. My notes say, a Christian family worships the God who created family by speaking evil of no one. But in the original language, luckily, no one means 
no one. Okay, and so speaking evil of no one, it's in the Bible, you can bank on it, reflecting of God who speaks of us despite all our faults as his beloved. And so as Christian families created in the image and the likeness of God, as husbands, as wives, as children, respecting their father and mother, as fathers guarding over their wives and their children, as wives helping the father provide, protect, and be a priest in loving submission, co-heirs in the gospel, but functionally submissive, reflecting the Trinity in that family. Christian families, we love and we give and we serve and we steward and we reflect the God who loves and gives and serves and stewards. The Christian family is called to reflect on earth the reality of our eternal family in heaven. And you need to know that in heaven, people ask this question all the time, are there families? There is recognition of individuals, but of course our familial relationships won't be important anymore. That's how I describe it. We will be together collected as one family, diverse. I think we touched on it this this sermon series at some point. There's multiple instances in the Bible where those who have received a glorified body were recognizable. Jesus himself was recognizable, still bearing the mark of the crucifixion. Part of me wonders if I will still have a birthmark in heaven on my face. Some of you will perhaps be able to recognize me because I have a birthmark. I will be able to recognize some of you because of your skin color, your hair color, your facial attributes, your size. This is not some homogenous ghost town where everyone looks alike. It's not the white supremacist dream. This is a diverse family brought from all nations, the Bible says, serving one king and no need for a son. And so with that perspective, we look differently at our families. Why? Because God looks differently and has a different calling for our families. And so we take our earthly family, we reflect a heavenly trajectory in all that we do. And we say to the world with our family on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for family. Thank you that you created family as one way by which we could understand more about you. And despite our flaws, despite what we ourselves, society in general, what the world, what sin has done to families, we honor you and thank you that you're putting back together the hearts of your children, the marriages between your children and the families that your children exist in. Not so that the world will see us, and that our family has it together and that our marriage is good and that I am someone to be followed, but that they would see you restoring us through our hearts, through our marriages and through our families so that they would see you through us and the work that you've done and the way that you've served and the way that you've loved and the way that you've given. Would we pour that back out in our Christian walk and in our marriages and in our families? as we reflect that heavenly perspective on earth. And so Jesus, we thank you for the promise of that, that one day, that eternal family that will be all of us. But we won't be there to talk about us. We'll be there to worship and glorify you. And so we look forward to that. But until then, Jesus, would it be that on earth as it is in heaven. And so we love you and we praise you. Can't wait to see you again in Jesus' name. Amen.